So I was looking up some quotes, some humorous quotes from atheists. Thought that would be interesting. And here's a few that I found. They told me to use the brain God gave me, and I did, and now I'm an atheist. Ironic, isn't it? Interesting. How's this one? Too stupid to understand science? Try religion. Wow. Ouch. Ouch. How about this one? When one person is delusional, it's called insanity. You know where this is going. When many people are delusional, they call it religion. Ouch. Ouch again. And finally, the most ironic one of all, thank God I'm an atheist. <laughs> now, I bet you didn't come to church this morning thinking you were going to hear from atheists. And um, I think it's good for us once in a while to realize that there are those who don't exactly get where we are coming from. That we do live in a world in which it's not a given to believe in God, to believe in Jesus. Um, and it's interesting and helpful to understand the way sometimes people might view us who have faith and who have a religion that we follow. Um, I just want to say at the beginning here, it's my fervent conviction that our faith stands firm in the midst of those kind of comments, that we do not have anything to worry about. But my overarching feeling when I hear such comments is those folks just don't have all the facts. They don't understand what it's really like and what it really means to be a Christian and to know Jesus. Because there's a lot of misconceptions about Christians out there. One of the misconceptions that's quite common is that to believe in God, you have to put your brain on a shelf. That it's unscientific, that it's unintellectual. And I got to say that sometimes as Christians, we sometimes contribute to that feeling just a little bit. Right? When we kind of get worried when scientific studies come out and advice and we say, no, 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 it might be against my faith. And so we're, we're very resistant to that sometimes. Sometimes we're resistant to intellectual discussion. We say it just should be about faith. It's just about faith. And so we, we get a little afraid of those questions that might come along. And I just want to say to you this morning that God made you with a brain, the beautiful, smart, creative brain that we can think through questions and intellectual have intellectual discussions and we can look at the science and we never have to be afraid that our faith will not meet the test, that Jesus will not meet the test because he does. A lot of you probably don't know that I was raised as an atheist. So my uh, parents were both atheists. My father especially was very much into it. He read a lot of Ayn Rand and atheist philosophy. Uh, he, was, he even wrote a book about his atheistic views at one point. And so essentially he discipled my sister and me in atheism for most of our childhood. And so over the dinner table, we would have discussions about how there's no God, about how there's no need to have a God, that you can be a moral and should be a moral and good person, even without a God in heaven over you. He talked about the fact that, um, he said that uh, you know, only weak people need, need faith. It's a crutch for weak and simple people, that if you're strong and smart, you don't need God. You can just stand on your own. He told us that when you die, you just go into the ground, just like all the other animals. That's the end. And that was what he taught us. And I was kind of all in it for a long time. I, in fact, uh, to my regret, uh, you know, several friends that I was pretty strong on pushing them about how, how foolish it was uh, that they believed in God. 
But I began to have questions when I was about 15. I started to have a lot of serious questions. Never underestimate the power of a teenager to have really profound thoughts. And, um, and I had profound, some profound thoughts at that point. One of them was, why should I be good if there isn't a God? My dad told me I should be, but of course he had an ulterior motive that I'd be good. <laughs> but why should I really? I mean, if I can lie and get away with it. I mean, I got that I shouldn't go murder people because we live in a society. That wouldn't be good. But why can't I lie? Why can't I be selfish? Why can't I be mean? Like, why can't I do whatever I want if there's no God? That was my first question. The second question I had is, well, then what's the purpose to life if there's no God? I could already at 15 see my life stretched out in front of me with you know, I, I was a good student, so I figured I'd go to college, I'd, I'd get married, I'd have some kids, I'd have a job. And, and for what? To be happy? To, to make myself as happy as I could until I died? And what if I wasn't happy? What if terrible tragedies came upon me, or I had terrible disease or problem? Like, then what? What's the purpose? I could see no purpose in any of it. And then also, finally, my scientific brain had a question. It's like, how did this all really get here? I mean, I was okay with the Big Bang, right? This idea that like there's a particle that was so concentrated with all matter and energy and everything, and it was all small, and it was a Big Bang, and it exploded, and the whole universe was created, and all that. I was fine with that. I was fine with evolution, any of that stuff. I didn't, I'm, that was fine. But my question was, who made that crazy particle? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty intense particle right there, okay? It's not your ordinary dust speck. There's a lot of energy and matter and whatnot. And then who lit the match that set that thing in? It just didn't make any sense to me. There had to be a source. There had to be a source. So I started talking to people, reading books like Mere Christianity and More Than a Carpenter, and started to see that there are intelligent, credible, even scientific reasons to believe that there is a God. And there's intelligent, credible, historical reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about those reasons today. I know that there might be some of you who say, I don't need to know all that. I believe, and that's enough for me. <laughs> and I get that. And that's great. And hallelujah, just believe and don't worry about it. You can check out right now if you want. <laughs> and just like, you know, look on your phone or something. I don't know. That's fine. But I want to tell you that there are people around you everywhere who do want to know, why should I believe this? You have people in your family, your young adult children, your, your, your parents, your siblings, your coworkers want to know why. And we're meant to be able to give an answer. We're meant to be able to give an answer to why we believe what we believe. We're in this series in which we're talking about who, and especially last week I talked about who is God. And I talked about his greatness and his majesty and his holiness and justice and love. And there was a huge assumption behind all of that, which is that he's actually real. Right? Why do we believe that? We live in a culture that doesn't believe that. Many of, many of them don't. Um, and so I, before we get into the actual reasons we believe, I wanted to take us for just a few moments to First Peter, because First Peter gives us a beautiful picture, a really interesting picture of how to live in a society that believes differently than we do. I realize not everybody in society believes differently, but a lot of people do. And so if you look in First Peter, it's very interesting. He talks about living among the pagans. That's what he calls them. The pagans in those days would have been those who didn't believe in the God of, of, of the Jews or the God of the Christians. It'd be they believed in all the different gods. Today, we wouldn't talk about the pagans. We would talk about living in a secular society, right? We live in a pluralistic society with many religions out there. And I'm very struck by the advice Peter gives us. 
Believe it or not, he doesn't tell us to get on Facebook with our opinions and shred people who are different than us. He doesn't tell us to get into fights on social media and arguing about faith with people or harassing people about going to hell. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't tell people to get fired up that the government doesn't support their faith. He doesn't tell people to worry about the fact that society is becoming godless. He doesn't say any of that. Here's what he says about living in a society that has a faith that's different than ours. He says this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, we're supposed to be doing known for our good deeds more than our opinions, right? Or our thoughts. Second of all, he says, submit yourselves to every human authority. So those authorities over us, whether godly or godless, submit yourself to authority. And they had very much more godless authorities over them than we do. They, had, they were being persecuted for their faith. He says, submit yourselves to them. He says, by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And then he says, finally, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. We're to bless those who might be different than us, who even might wish evil on us because of our faith. And it's in this context that he says the verse that perhaps some of you know, verses 15 to 16, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. We never have to worry that we can't revere Christ as Lord. It doesn't matter what the society is doing around us. It doesn't matter what the beliefs are, what, what the laws are even. We can always revere Christ as Lord. That's what he's saying. It's, it, you have a choice to revere him. And then he says, but always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak more maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Always be ready. Always be ready in this environment to speak of the hope that you have within you with gentleness, with respect, but always be ready. So this is why we want to understand the reasons for our faith, so that we're ready to give an answer. We understand it so that we can live confidently in a pluralistic world that doesn't always agree with us. We can live confidently. We don't have to be ashamed of our faith in Jesus. We don't need to be embarrassed by our faith in Jesus. It is, it is good. And we also understand it so that we don't have to live on the defensive. We can submit to authorities. We can bless those who are different from us. We can be bold in good deeds. We don't have to live on the defensive because we know who we know. We know Jesus, right? And finally, we understand the reasons for our faith so that when someone asks, we're ready. We're ready to speak of the hope that's within us. I have a story to tell you. When I was in my 20s, I worked in an office down in, this, in New York City, and I had a wonderful friend, an office administrator named Jody. And she and I were really great buddies. We just loved working together. She was a lot of fun. And um, we went through a lot together, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of crazy. It was a very uh, intense office with deadlines and people all stressed out and everything all the time. And one day she stopped me in the hall, and she said to me, Beth, I've watched you now, she said, and I, I see that you are so calm and peaceful in the midst of all this crazy. What makes you so peaceful? What a cool intro, right? I mean, what kind of a, a setup is that for me to say, it's Jesus that gives me peace, that, that, that you know, I know that I, my, my boss is not really this boss, it's the boss in heaven, and I don't need to be stressed out about work and, you know, all of that. I know you think that's what I said.
Unfortunately, that is not what I said. In that moment, a furious battle started going on in my mind. And the battle was, oh my gosh, if I talk about Jesus to her, she's going to think I'm crazy. And I'm not supposed to talk about God at work anyway. Am I or am I? Am I okay? Is it okay if I talk about God? I don't know if I should talk about God. And then it's going to come out funny. I, I don't even know how I'm going to put this. And, and what if she asks me questions that I don't know the answers to? And so I, my brain started, went into a freeze. And what I said to her was, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's just the way I am. You know, it was about five minutes later that I felt so embarrassed, so ashamed. I still feel ashamed about that moment. But there was like no way to go back and fix it, you know. Uh, the moment was, was gone. Listen, we never need to be ashamed to speak of what God has done in our own life. It's our story, what God has done. And I hope that if there are any of you here today that are either here in person or perhaps listening online that aren't sure about that, this, this that wonder, is this all true? Are they, what is it that these crazy people here all believe in? And are they crazy or does it make some sense? I hope that today you will find that it does make sense. It makes a lot of sense. So we're talking about the field of apologetics. For any of you that have been, you know, have, are up on that, on what it is, um, it's, it's, it's why we believe what we believe. It's not making an apology for our faith. It doesn't come from the word apology. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a reasoned defense. This is, we, we are able to make a reasoned defense of our faith. And so I'm going to share with you a few things about this. Now, listen, this is a huge topic. I could do a whole sermon series on apologetics. And if you want me to do that, maybe we will someday. Um, I have a friend up north who has a master's degree in apologetics. Okay, so there's a lot of material here. If, if you want to know more, I can, I can send you uh, some resources and so on. But I'm just going to touch on four sort of big picture ideas, evidence that helps us to feel confident in our faith, that are, that are reasoned defense of our faith. All right, are you ready? So I'm going to be throwing it at you pretty quick. If you take notes, take notes, um, because we're going to be going through it. Four reasoned defenses of our faith, okay? The first one, evidence of the Bible. This is important because so much of what we get about who God is is from this book, right? So if this book isn't right, if this is we're all made up by somebody, then we are really, you know, we're really up a creek, right? So we need to know that we can believe this Bible. Um, and so we look at 2 Timothy, of course, this is what we as Christians believe about the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So how do we know it? How do we know that it's true? Well, i got a couple of ways I want to talk to you about. The first is fulfilled prophecy. This book is unique over any other religious text because it has hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are all fulfilled either in, within the Old Testament or in the New or some, a few are still left to be fulfilled. But hundreds of them that you can see the fulfillment of those prophecies and these are written over hundreds of years. And if you just take the prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus, just that alone, it's incredible. Let me just take you through a few, all right? So the Old Testament writers prophesied about what the Messiah would be like, where he would come from. And these are written, let me tell you, you know, hundreds of years before the actual time of Jesus coming. So it first says, of the seed of Abraham, that the Messiah would be of the seed of Abraham. That's in Genesis 12. Almost 1,900 years before Jesus. These dates are all approximate, but they're still hundreds of years before Christ. Of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah would be. Genesis 49, that's 1,800 years before Christ. Of the line of David, 2 Samuel, 
a thousand years before Jesus. So we're narrowing in on who this Messiah could be, right? Where, what what, what um, tribe and, and line he would be from. Then it goes on in Micah, born in Bethlehem, 700 years before Jesus, it's predicted. Then it's predicted that he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. That's about 700 years before Jesus also. Then it says in many places that he's going to be crucified, pierced through. Psalms, Isaiah, Zechariah, all that 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus. And finally, risen from the dead. Talks about it in Psalms, which would be about 1,000 years before Jesus. And then Jesus himself predicts that he would be risen from the dead. These prophecies all came well in advance of Jesus actually coming. And you might say, well, it was just, you know, happenstance. One guy was eventually going to fulfill all these prophecies, right? So it just happened to be this guy, Jesus. Well, somebody thought about that. A guy named Peter Stoner did a little research on this. And he researched just eight prophecies about Jesus. Some of these, he said, the chances of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one times 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros. That's more people by, by a long shot than have even existed on the planet ever. <laughs> All fulfilled in Jesus. All fulfilled in Jesus. Can you just get that in your brain, how beautiful that is? We can trust. The word of God, the prophetic word is amazing. Now, there's more. The archaeological record. This is one of my favorites. I kind of think, I kind of like archaeology. I think it's fun. And what I love about archaeology is that the archaeologists like to say things like, well, we never found this place or this person that was mentioned in the Bible, and so therefore uh, the Bible people must have made it up. And then they end up finding the thing later. <laughs> I love that. It happens all the time. A couple of just quick examples. This one is the... Um, the uh, the Tel Dan Stell, and uh, the, before 1993, believe it or not, as recent as 1993, there was no physical proof of the King of King David. We had him in the Bible, but other than that, uh, there was no physical proof. They never found any archaeological proof, and so lots of people said, "Oh, you know, the Jews and the and then the Christians got just made this up." Until they found the Tel Dan Stell, and on this Stell in 1993, it's like a stone piece of stone monument. And it shows David as the head of a kingly dynasty. It says, Jehoram, king of Israel and king of the house of David. The very first, there's been other ones since then, but the very first time David was actually shown to be a real archaeological, real figure, historical figure. So there you go. Bible just gets confirmed like that. Now all those people that said, we just made it up. Well, we didn't. We didn't make it up. God, God made it up because it's real. <laughs> Another one that I love is about King Belshazzar, who's mentioned in Daniel. And um, King Belshazzar uh, was a, mentioned in Daniel as a king over Babylon. And the problem is that Babylon, Babylonians kept good records, actually, the ancient Babylonians. And so you could see all the kings of Babylon, and King Belshazzar was never one of those kings. So again, people said, oh, well, the, Daniel must have made it up. It was all, you know, just a fabrication until the late 19th century, and they found this thing called the Nabonidus Cylinder, the little cylinder with all this writing in it. And on the writing, it says that the son of Nabonidus is Belshazzar. <laughs> he was a co-regent with his father. That's why he wasn't mentioned in the, in the official Babylonian, uh, but he, there he is. Again, the scripture just keeps getting confirmed over and over and over again. We never need to be afraid of what they're going to find because they're just going to keep finding more stuff that we know is in here. Amen? Amen. Amen. And, and what that kind of leads me to is my last sort of evidence for the Bible is just that this book is astounding. It's one book, but it's actually 66 different books written by 40 different authors 
over thousands of years, many different cultures, different languages. And yet in this book is a consistent picture of the love of God, his work among his people, who he is, why he does what he does, what he thinks of us. It's consistent from beginning to end. You will not find anything inconsistent in it. It is the word of God. It is truth. We can be sure of it. We can be confident in that. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so that's my first reason defense, that we can trust the Bible. All right, second reason defense is the evidence from creation. This one's an easy one, right? I mean, most of us can look outside and see a sunset, see the mountains, see the oceans stretching out, and we can say, this had to have been made. Most tribes, nations, countries throughout all of all of time have had some kind of creation story because there's almost no other way to explain what we see around us, the beauty, the complexity. It had to have been created. It had to have been created by a God. And the Bible says we're really without excuse if we don't see it. Romans 1, 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We're really without excuse if we can't see that. But there's also other, other um, discoveries that are interesting that help us to see that the creation is really incredible and created by God. One simple example is the discovery of the extreme fine-tuning of our universe, not, and of the whole universe and also of our earth. For us to exist here on earth took an incredibly precise set of circumstances. If our earth was any closer to the sun, it'd be too hot. If it was too far, a little bit farther away, it'd be too cold. If the orbit of the earth was just a little bit different, then uh, the swing, temperature swings on earth would be too great and we couldn't live. If the atmosphere was a little bit more dense, just a little bit, it'd be too dense and we would die of nauseous gases. So, so many things had to be exactly in place for life to happen on earth. And it's not just about the earth. You could say, oh, that's little. There's lots of, lots of potential earths all over the universe. But even it's true of the universe. A very interesting um, study was done by a man named... Um, Hold on. My eyes are blurring. Sorry. Francis Collin. So Francis Collins is a brilliant uh, PhD in scientist. He is the head of the National Institute of Health. And um, he actually is, is still the National Institute of Health director, but he's also, he also was through, um, through Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now with Joe Biden. So I figure if those three guys can agree on an expert, he's probably an expert. <laughs> okay? right? So he's the head of the NIH. Um, he also was the head of the Human Genome Project, that huge project that labeled the, the whole genetic um, pattern. And so he's, he's also a strong Christian, which is kind of cool. And in the language of God, he writes this about these, this idea of the fine-tuning of the universe. He says this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist of the universe, at the universe, it looks as if the universe knew we were coming, there are 15 cosmological constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, that's a lot of parts, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. If this doesn't show the hand of God, I don't know what does. God made this world. He had to make it so precisely for it to even exist, this whole universe. It's beautiful. 
It's complex. Like an old ancient clergyman once said, if you see a watch, you assume there was a watchmaker. What an amazing watchmaker there has. What an amazing watchmaker. So that's the evidence from creation. You, you with me? Are you with me? Okay, that we've done two. Evidence of the Bible, evidence of creation. We're going to go to number three. This is probably the most important one of all. The evidence from the resurrection. Our faith really rests on this historical fact of the resurrection. Without it, really, we got nothing. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We might as well go home. <laughs> and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is an important piece of our reason defense. If if Jesus hasn't been raised, then what are we doing here? But if he has, then he truly is the son of God and has died for our sins and gives us new life. Amen? Amen. So we need to be able to be confirmed in that and, and, and feel confident in that. And there's actually excellent evidence that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead that you might not be aware of. Uh, very interestingly, a scholar named Gary Habernas back in 1975 did a study. He looked at 3,000 different articles written by different researchers, biblical and historical researchers, both Christian and non-Christian, atheists, secular, and Christian researchers, and he looked at every single article they wrote about the resurrection, about the facts around the resurrection, about what happened, and so on. And he pulled out of those articles the things they all agreed on. Obviously, there were things they didn't agree on, right, as Christians and non-Christians, but, but he pulled out the things that they would all agree on, including the secular um, uh, researchers and so on, and he pulled them together and said, these are the five facts, or four, four and a half, we'll say, facts that everyone agrees on actually happened. He called them the minimal facts. And these are facts about Jesus' resurrection that are practically indisputable. So let's, I'm going to get through them here for you in a moment. The first fact seems maybe sort of obvious to us, but it's not obvious to everyone that Jesus actually was crucified and he died. So it actually happened. Some people tried to say that Jesus never existed, that he never actually died. Well, there's pretty good proof that he did. Um, not only obviously from the four Gospels and from the Bible we see that written about, but also other extra-biblical writers, Josephus, um, a Roman historian called Tacitus, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, all those confirm that Jesus was a person who died and was buried, crucified, and died. Second fact, and I love this one, that all his disciples claimed to have seen Jesus rise physically from the dead. So scripture talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, how Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the apostles, to uh, more than 500 people, Luke talks about it um, in Acts. He says, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. So he appeared to all these people. Well, you could say, well, well, they made it up. They just said they saw him because they wanted to start a new religion. I ask you, why would they make up a new religion if they would end up dying for it? Every one of the apostles died a horrible death because of their faith. They were martyred for their faith. Why would someone who knew it was a lie, I mean, let's just say they were making it up. Yeah, sure, Jesus rose from the dead. I, I saw him. And they're just making it up. We got a new religion going. They're going to be the heads of the new religion. Sounds good. And then out comes the hangman's noose. Or out comes somebody with those nails that they're going to drive into their body. And I think at that point, if they knew it was not true, 
I think they would have been like, you know, just kidding. <laughs> really, it was just all, we all made it up. Maybe one of them might have gone for it. All of them. All of them willing to lay their life on the line. Why? Because they saw the risen Jesus. They saw him. They could not deny it. They weren't all in, 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 insane. At least some of them had to be sane. And they saw him and they believed it and they died for that faith. Hallelujah. This is very convincing evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Somebody ever asks you, ah, how do they know about that? Tell them about the disciples. What would make those disciples act that way? And nobody disputes that they did. They did. Now, the other next two facts are very similar. You could have the same story, the same question about Paul. He was originally Saul of Tarsus. We know he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He was throwing people in prison for being Christians. And what happened to him? Suddenly, he has an, uh, an experience with God. And he now is a proponent of the church. He's planting churches. He's getting flogged, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, and eventually gets martyred for his faith. Again, why would someone who hated the Christians suddenly, suddenly give his life for it? Because he saw the risen Jesus. Same goes for James. We're going to be studying James a little bit more later this year. James was a stepbrother of Jesus, didn't believe in him, thought he was crazy during his life. And then after that, suddenly was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, also martyred for his faith. Why? Because Jesus appeared to him. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared and mentions James, James specifically. That's amazing. There's one last minimal fact about the resurrection. This one, not everybody agrees happened, but probably about 75% of those researchers Christian and non-Christian, recognize that this fact is true, that the tomb was empty. I mean, that's the key, right? Um, if it wasn't empty, it would have been pretty easy for someone to just walk in there and produce the body. And I'm sure they did a search around, you know, look in the disciples' houses, look in their back shed to see if there was a body lying around. Never, never a fingernail found, okay? Jesus was not found. His body was gone. Because the dead body was gone. He was found as alive. And so that's, first of all, pretty convincing that the tomb was empty. But also, I love this little, little bit. It's not going to be up on the screen. But um, in Matthew 28, it talks about the fact that the, so the guards were guarding the tomb. It, it was empty. And so the Jewish authorities talked with the guards. And they're like, we got to get our story straight because there was an empty tomb. And so they devised a plan. It says they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, paid them off. And told them you are to say the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, they wouldn't have needed to do that if there wasn't an empty tomb. <laughs> it means they knew something fishy had happened, but they couldn't, they couldn't admit what it was. That tomb was empty. So there are many theories which might try to explain away these facts, these five facts. And if we had more time, we would go into all those theories. But here's the thing. The best theory that explains all of those facts that I just laid out for you today is that Jesus Christ truly died, was buried, and rose to life on the third day. That is the best explanation of the fact. Yes, give him a hand because hallelujah. Hallelujah. We can be confident in this historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad about that, aren't you? I'm so glad. The last bit of my reason defense is much simpler, and it's simply the evidence of changed lives. That it works. I'm pretty sure 
I could take the microphone and go around. We'd be here all day. But I'm sure a lot of you could pick up that microphone and say, this is how Jesus changed my life. Because Jesus, that's what he does. That's what he does. When those truly follow Jesus, addictions fall off and people are healed and sinners come home and people are reconciled and and anxiety is lifted and peace comes. That's what happens. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that changes a life like Jesus can. Amen. Amen. And at the end of the day, that might be just the best defense of our faith is our story. Nobody can argue with your story what Jesus has done in you. And so be ready to talk about your story, what Jesus has done. And you don't like be like me with my friend Jody, who just was like, well, you know, tongue tied. Just be ready to speak. This is what Jesus has done in my life, how he has changed me, how he's delivered me, how he took me out of the miry pit, how he has given me joy and peace and purpose and direction in my life. Be ready to talk about that. So what does all this evidence mean? It means that God is real. <laughs> He's real. We don't have to be ashamed of that. And that's the first thing. It means that we never need to be ashamed of our faith. We never need to be ashamed. There are many who will say that it's unscientific or unintellectual. I hope today I've shown you that it's not. And here's the thing. You can have the, the greatest intellect. You could be a genius, an absolute genius. I have a friend up north who I would say is probably a genius. And he believes in Jesus. <laughs> he believes in the Bible. You can be a genius, and with integrity, you can believe in the truth of the Bible and in God coming and dying for you and for me. But you can also have the very simplest of intellects and barely grasp anything. You can be a child, and you can just put your faith in Jesus. And that's enough, too. That's what's amazing about our faith. So if you have a family member or friend that always makes you feel just a little foolish about being a Christian, just love them. And maybe offer that there are some reasons why you believe what you believe. You can send them the, hopefully the video, the tape of this video came up. You can send them that. You can talk to them about some books, whatever. But never be ashamed. And this morning, if you are here or you're online and you are wondering if this is all true, if you wonder, is it really real? I can just say to you that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian. That you can believe it with all of your brain and all of your heart. And here's the thing. When you come to Christ, not only do you get a set of intellectual beliefs that you take on, but even more importantly, you meet the creator, God himself, and he comes into relationship with you and he loves you and he walks with you. So there's a transformation of the brain, of the mind, but also of the heart, of the soul, of the spirit. He makes a difference, he makes a difference. So we also never need to be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. If God is real, then he's big enough to handle all your questions. Don't be afraid of the questions your kids might ask you or others. But realize we don't need to understand everything to have a powerful faith. At a certain point, we have to say, okay, I've, I've, I've listened, I've learned, and there's always gonna be an unanswered question or two. But do I have, as my British friends like to say, enough to be getting on with? Do I have enough to be getting on with in this faith? You will find that as you step out in faith, even with questions, that the road will prove firm. And that your faith, both intellectually and 
inside, in your heart, will grow, will get firmer and stronger as you walk with him, as he proves himself in your life. You're going to find that, I promise you. And so finally, that means we can give ourselves unreservedly to God. We can just offer ourselves to him. Listen, I am not willing to die for something that might be true. I didn't uproot our family to come down here because of something that possibly might be true. I'm not making my whole life around something that might be true, no. But if I have a firm foundation, I'm sure of the firm foundation of Jesus, of his word, that he died for me, that he is real, that I am delighted and honored to bend the knee and offer everything that I have and all my days to him, right? If he's real, we can offer ourselves to him without reservation. I know I've given you a lot to think about, especially if you are someone who's seeking, who's questioning. I would love it if you had questions still, if you would come to me, come to Paul, come to any of the board members or other leaders here. We can help you answer your questions. But if you've got enough to be getting on with, then there's no day like today to give your life to Jesus. To just say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, help my questions, but Lord, I believe. I want to start to walk with you. This is, there's no day like today to do that. Lord Jesus, we affirm everything that we have heard, Lord. Speak to us, whether we are a long-time believer or if we've never put our foot through the door. May we put our faith in you anew, afresh. May we step out with you with some questions perhaps still unanswered, but step out and trust that you are real, that you are true, and you are here to meet with us. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Amen.